0: We're going to go backwards. So Brian went uh, farther ahead. We're going to come back to Psalm 8. And before we read Psalm 8, I I do want to take a few moments to put it in its context. I'm going to pray for us, put it in its context, and we'll slide right into it. Let's pray. Our Father, you are worthy. Uh, Lord Jesus, you're worthy. Spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit, very God of very God, you too are worthy of our praise. Thank you. Blessed Trinity. Father, for choosing, Jesus for saving, the Spirit for sealing. Thank you for working in partnership with one another to accomplish redemption, to save people who are rebels. Thank you for the same work of the Father, Son, and Spirit, which we have with this Word. Holy Spirit, you carry men along. You breathe out the Word of God that Christ is the living word. This is the word of the Father to us. Thank you again that we can turn and be blessed by your works. I do pray that you will build up your people, that you will make us more like Christ. For his sake we pray, amen. Psalm 8, uh, it, it really reads as if it's, it's out of place. And here's what I mean. I want you to listen to some themes as I go back to Psalm 3. And read up through Psalm 7, and then I'll read from Psalm 9, and maybe read through Psalm 12 or 13, and see if you can notice something different. This is what David says in in, in Psalm 3. Remember, Absalom is trying to take his life. So that's Psalm 3. Psalm 4 Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. How long, O men, shall my honor be turned into shame? Psalm five, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. Psalm six, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. My bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. Listen to Psalm seven. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all of my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, right? So Psalm 3 through 7, David is kind of going through it. Whether it's his own sin, whether someone's trying to take his life, it's just dark and it's hard and it's sad. But, but listen to Psalms 9 through 13. Psalm 9, be gracious, O Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Psalm 10, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 11, I will take refuge in the Lord. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow and they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark, the upright at heart. Psalm 12. Save me, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart do they speak. Psalm thirteen: O oh Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? You hear it? Psalm three through seven, it's hard. Psalm nine through 13, it's hard. Now listen to Psalm eight. Now listen to it. To the choir master, according to the getteth, the Son of Man, that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, all oxen, and also all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the heavens and all the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And all the earth. Did you catch the shift for Psalm 8? Trials are behind him, and trials are in front of him. But Psalm 8, if it were a color, it would be bright light breaking into the darkness. If Psalm 8 were a day, it would be one cool day in the middle of two weeks of hell. If Psalm 8, if David's life were likened to a hike up a 14,000 foot mountain, right? Psalm 8 would be right there in the middle. He's come up 7,000 feet behind him of agony and and trials and trails. And he gets to this beautiful plateau where there's water and there's food and there's fish and there's shade and there's rest. And he has far more to go. But for right now in that one moment is rest. David's in a good place in Psalm 8. Now, chronologically, we don't know when it was written, but we do believe that the same Holy Spirit who worked in the hearts and lives of the individual composers of the Psalms also was at work in the person who arranged it. In other words, it's not just the writers of scripture that the Holy Spirit is inspiring. What we're telling you is that the Psalms, they were written by numerous people, numerous ages, and someone compiled them all, and someone stuck Psalm 8 right here in the middle. Trials behind him, trials in front of him, but for right here in this moment, there's light. It breaks into the darkness. However long it lasts, Psalm 8 says, the light will break in. Whatever he's been through behind, whatever lays ahead, for a moment, David sees clearly. For a moment, the Lord is near and David is in a really good place. Light breaks into darkness. My question, is it wrong? Is it wrong to expect this to happen? Is it wrong to expect the Lord to give us these times of rest and refreshment in the Christian life for a season? Should we desire this, right? Now, a part of me, if I listen to one half of Scripture, we might feel guilty for answering that question with yes. So if you hear this other side of Scripture, through many trials you will enter the kingdom. If you hear this other side of Scripture, you're broken and the world is broken and it's fallen and therefore life on earth will never be good. If you hear this, right, that they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. If you hear that and that's all you hear and it's not in stereo, it's only on in mono, right? Then you might feel guilty of answering that question. Yes, but if you listen to the totality of Scripture... And you're going to have some bad times and some dark moments and some hard seasons. But scripture also says the Lord is near and he's going to give you Psalm 8 moments in the midst of darkness where it's clear and trials seem to recede to the background. You're besetting sin for a moment. It's, it's put to death The things happening in your family are beautiful. The Lord's at work. Now, uh, there's been great strides down paths of vulnerability, especially in, in our day and age. That's kind of a buzzword, and I like it, right? And I think what, what my generation and those a little older than me are wrestling through is the pretense and the, what, what's perceived as hypocrisy in the church, where we, we, everything's not okay, but we sort of dress things up like everything is okay, and we smile. How are you? I'm fine. No, you're not. Everything's falling apart. You're just not being honest, right? And what the vulnerability movement does for us is it creates a way, a really healthy pathway in the gospel to own it, to own our sin, to own what's wrong, to own our brokenness, and to be really honest. And that is good, beloved. That is good. Now, here's, the, here's not a problem, but here's a concern, right? A concern of mine is when you idolize vulnerability, and you idolize suffering and you sort of look at people like they're wrong or they're blind or they're being deceptive when they say, you know what, life is kind of good right now. And if you come out of that movement, then the way that you look at that person in that moment, you're a lie, you're blind, you're aloof, you can't be telling the truth because we're broken, we live in a fallen world and things are falling apart, right? Well, you gotta hear it in concert, right? You got to hear this other side of the good news of the gospel, and it says that light does break in, and your Father in heaven does want to give you rest. He does want to come and conquer some of those enemies in your life for a season, and, and he wants to do that. Think about Jesus. He's the most emotionally healthy person to ever walk the earth, right? And here's what you see about Jesus. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He's tempted that's a low, right? That's a real low. But he comes out of that, right? And he is ministered to by the Spirit and by the angels. If you ask Jesus, how are you right now when the angels and the Spirit are, is, is ministering to him? You know what he's not going to say? I'm going through it. I done came through it. But right here in this moment, I'm good. My God has showed up, right? Think about Jesus, right? The most emotionally healthy person to ever walk the earth. The cross looms larger and larger and larger and larger and larger the closer he gets to it. That the Gospels talk about it. Now my soul is troubled beyond measure. But you know what else Jesus is known for? Being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, I'm not saying he was drunk. I'm not saying he overate. But what I am saying is your king and your Jesus knew how to go to a party and not play Debbie Downer. He knew how to go to a party, and for a moment, I know I'm going to die. I know I'm going to stand before the wrath of God, and that recedes. And for a moment, I'm going to w- rejoice with those who rejoice. I will not dare bring up something else, right? That for a moment, right, he's present. Think about Philippians 4. When Paul talks about, I have found the secret of contentment, I know how to be content when I have little And when I have what? A lot. I know how to be content when I have nothing and when I have more than enough. We tend to focus on the contentment he finds when he has nothing. And Paul is saying, you know what? There's another place you can be where you have excess. And guess what? You can enjoy that. You can be in that space in your life where it is good and not be over there talking about it's bad. You see the freedom, beloved? David's in a good place. And the question I sort of want us to wrestle through is what makes it good? How do we know when the light of God breaks in? Would you be able to recognize it? That's the question. And so the first thing I think happens when the light of God breaks in, the veiled beauty of God is unveiled. I think suffering and trials, they, they, they do something to us, right? They veil something. They, they, God is beautiful, right? And we see that in the Scriptures. And all of a sudden, trials and suffering and hardships, they come our way and they cover something up. But, but, but when the light of God breaks in, it takes what is hidden and veiled for a moment and it, it exposes it and we can see the beauty of God again. And it's not like it's went anywhere. Right. But for a moment, it breaks in and we can see the beauty of the Lord. And you see it in our text. Right. It starts with this. What's the start of this unveiling? It's in verses 1 and 9. So the psalm begins and ends with the same way. It's the bookends of the psalm, and it's, O Lord, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The good season and life hinges off of this at the center of it. However long it lasts, it's the beauty of the Lord. And I love what David does. He combines two names of the Lord. So on the one hand, it's Yahweh, this, this I am who I am, this covenantally faithful God. and then Adonai, or Adon this idea of lordship and master and what David is saying are covenantally faithful the I am who I am who is also Lord over everything he has chosen for this moment to use his covenant faithfulness and power to drive away the darkness it hinges off of that it hinges off of that right there God is breaking in. And the question that we have to ask is what prompts this? What starts the unveiling? I think it's in verse 3. David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, David either has time or makes time to look up. He pays attention to creation. This was probably a normal rhythm of his life. At one point, before he was a king, he was a shepherd. And shepherds watch sheep, and sheep live in the fields. And so David would watch sheep and get them settled and look up. I think that practice stayed with him, or there was a posture of looking up. And what David says is, I see the moon, and I see the stars, and I see the clouds, and I see the seasons, and I see the suns, and and it's not polluted by light of a bustling city. I see constellations, and I see it, and he bursts into praise. He says, no man created this, that this is from the hand of another, the hand of Elohim, the hand of Yahweh, the hand of Adonai. David's an artist, right? He, he plays the harp and the lyre, and, and David's a poet, right? We're reading his psalms, and what you have in this psalm is one artist giving props to another artist. David says, I write psalms, but the story of redemption that you're writing is so much better. I make melodies, right, with the harp, but, but look at the melody that you're making in creation. This is David bowing before another artist. And David draws the only conclusion he says, look, if the heavens are beautiful, then how much more is the one who made them? That's why he says your glory are above the heavens. I look at the heavens and I'm blown away, but your glory is above them. In other words, he's saying, look, your glory is above what is beautiful. What I see, you're more beautiful than even what, you, what I can see. When light breaks in, we see the beauty of God even through creation. And here's the secret. Beauty never goes anywhere, right? The sun hasn't not run its course. The moon hasn't stopped doing what moons do. The stars haven't gone anywhere. Flowers still bloom. Hummingbirds still come in your garden. Trials make us not see them. And this isn't the only time. You remember Jesus? He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat and drink and wear. He says, consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the heaven." He says, I tell you, Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of them. He says, look, how much more does your father in heaven care for you than the birds which and the grass, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven? In other words, when they're anxious, what does Jesus do? He says, look at creation. Look at how your heavenly father creates beautiful flowers. Look at how your heavenly father feeds birds. Birds don't have deep freezers, Beloved. Your father feeds him. And what Jesus does in Matthew, David does in Psalms. When the darkness breaks in, a mere look at creation can be light. I read a book over a vacation, and the name of it was Culture Care. And it was written by a man by the name of Makoto Fujimura. And here's what he says about beauty. He says, we had a tight budget when Judy and I got married in 1983. She pursued her master's degree, and I taught special education and painted on the side. And we ate tons of tuna, canned tuna, in those days. And one day, I was sitting at home in our small apartment, worried about how we were going to afford the rent and pay for necessities for that weekend, let alone the month. And our refrigerator was completely empty, and we had no cash left. And then Judy walked into the apartment with a bouquet of flowers. He says, and I lost it. How could you buy flowers and we have no bill money? How can you buy flowers and we have no food? And Judy says, shh, we need to feed our souls with beauty as well. I don't remember what we ate that day, but I do remember the flowers. When all around us was ugly and hard, I needed to see beauty. My soul needed to see beauty. God was with them, and I painted those flowers. You hear what he's saying? You, You get it, right? They have nothing. And what his wife does is brings a bouquet of flowers, and it screams beauty. Beloved, never underestimate what a walk in the park can do for your soul. That seemed to be Jesus' cure for anxiety. He says, Go take a walk, just go, go take a walk. Get outside and get off your phones and, and get off your iPods and get in front of the TV and go take a walk and hear heaven. Go take a walk and see real beauty. Don't underestimate what a walk in the park and, and going to art shows and, 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 and seeing cities and, and things that, 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 that man didn't do. Go see the Grand Canyon. Go look at stuff that we didn't do with our hands that we would remember that the Lord is beautiful. That's why I told my wife. We went to D.C. and then New York. And after reading, I'm just like, babe, let's not go to a big city all these buildings, they were laid by some men, some men and women. They all built these bricks. It's good. It's good to see it. But man, I need, I need to go see something that's natural, right? Natural. Man didn't do this, right? I've already asked a few people to help me plan it, right? All right. When the, when the light of God breaks in, we see the beauty of the Lord. The second thing happens is the the volatile emotions that we feel are stabilized. Trials can drive even the humblest of us to pride, and it works in a real, you know. I think when trials come, we can get in this sort of rut, like, why me? And the Lord is like, well, why not you, right, you know? What makes you better than this woman over here who just lost her husband? What makes you think you're better than, than this to be immune from this? Did I not send my son to the earth and did he not suffer? So you're better than Jesus now, right? I get it, right? See, I think what, what trials can do is, is they can make us arrogant, right? We can start to think more of ourselves than we should. And it can work the other way, right? Where we're despair and, and, and probably in a place lower than we should be. And what you're going to see when, when the light of God breaks in It's going to stabilize us, right? It's going to put us in a healthy place. And here's what David says. The first thing it does is, is the light of God. It brings humility. Being humbled is a theme all throughout the scriptures. Isaiah saw the Lord and he was like, woe is me. I'm a man with unclean lips and I dwell with people who are unclean. John sees an angel and he just wants to fall down. Like God is in the business of getting glory and humbling man in scripture, right? And look how it seamlessly reads. David doesn't need to see an angel to be humble. Look at it. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Look how it goes seamlessly into verse four. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You see it. Creation is doing this. When we see the grandeur of God, we realize our smallness. And this is good for our souls. The world doesn't revolve around humans. Contrary to what we think, we are here today and gone tomorrow. There are turtles in the ocean that will outlive you. There are giant sequoias in California older than this country. And what about some of the images from the Hubble telescope? You you peeped them lately? All right, so this is a Crab Nebula, and I don't know what a nebula is, right? (laughs) The Hubble image gives the most detailed view of the entire Crab Nebula ever. It is one of the most interesting and well-studied objects in astronomy. Next slide. This is like the Whirlpool galaxy, the graceful winding arms of the majestic spiral M51 NGC 5194 appear like a grand spiral staircase sweeping through space. They are actually long lines of stars and gas laced with dust. The Whirlpool is one of astronomy's galactic darlings located approximately 25 million light years away, right? Next slide, this is the Butterfly Nebula. This celestial object looks like a delicate butterfly, but it is far from serene. What resembles a dainty butterfly are actually rolling cauldrons of gas heated nearly 20,000 degrees Celsius. The gas is tearing across space more than 950,000 kilometers per hour, fast enough to travel from the earth to the moon in 24 minutes. One of my favorites, roses made of galaxies, right? It's a rose. It looks like a rose, right? This image is two interacting galaxies called ARP 263, right? You get it. These, these are two galaxies dancing around one another. The next one, the bubble nebula. And my favorite of all, this one right here, the pillars of creation. Now, look, beloved, I don't know what all this stuff is, right? But here's what I do know. We go to the beach, and we like to look for crabs. And God says, you want to see crabs? I got crabs in the heavens. What kid does not like bubbles and to chase bubbles? God says, you like bubbles? I got bubbles 25 million light years away, dancing in the heavens. And you like butterflies? I got butterflies that flap their wings, their galaxies in the heavens. You you, you see what happens, beloved? That all of a sudden, when you see this stuff, we ought to feel really, 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 really small. You know what? David didn't have a Hubble telescope. This is what he had. And if he is buckling in humility... Over what his finite eyes can see, how much more should we be under the ground, floored with all that God knows us? That's why John Calvin, that's why he says it. That's why he says the key to knowledge is knowing God and knowing self. That's the key to wisdom. And those blessings which unceasingly distill to us from heaven are like streams conducting us back to the fountain. Here again, the infinitude of good which resides in God becomes more apparent from our poverty. Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. You hear that? That's what God does through creation. He puts us back in our place. When the light of God breaks in, we start to see who are we that you're mindful of us. But that's not it, right? The light of God does something else. It exalts, and you see that, right? It goes right from verse 4 What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And look at that yet. Yet you have made him a little lower than heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, all oxen, all beasts of the field, all the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the seas. Now, if you look at verse 5, you see a textual note. My, my Bible has a 7 right after heavenly beings. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Mine has a 7. and At the bottom, it'll tell you. This could be translated, you've made him a little lower than God. Or if you look at the Septuagint, it says the angels. I side with this should be God. It's the word there is Elohim in the plural. It's a plural of majesty, right? It's the same word you see in Genesis. In the beginning, Elohim said, let there be light. In the beginning, right, the spirit of Elohim was hovering the face of the waters. And Elohim said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And Elohim said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the livestock, and over all the earth. And notice how this goes straight from that. You have made him a little lower than God, and you have given him what? Dominion. You get it? You see what David's saying? You crown him with glory and honor. Doesn't this sound identical to Genesis? David isn't making this up, beloved. He doesn't just know about dominion. You know what he did for a living before he was king? He was a shepherd. What does he say right here? You have put all sheep and oxen under his feet. The sheep listened to David's voice. And when the lion and the bear would not listen to his voice, he says, I'll kill it. And he did. Remember that? When he's about to be king and they're telling him, you're too young. There's no way you can beat Goliath. And he says, you don't know nothing about me, right? I mean, this is my translation, right? This not in the Bible, right? <laughs> He's like, you don't know nothing about me. I got the juice, right? And he says, when, when those lions, plural, and those bears, plural, came and attacked my sheep, he says, I went out and I killed them. And I'm going to kill this fool over here, too. He's talking noise, right? <laughs> Dominion. He lived it. When the light of God breaks in, beloved the emotional volatility that we feel, that that trials often bring, the Lord stabilizes it. We're both humbled and exalted. We're both unimportant and important. We're both weak and we're strong. We aren't one but the other. And hardships, they make us, they pull us one way or the other. And what the light of God does when it breaks in It says, you're not on the cosmic throne, I am, but I love you, and I'm with you. You were made in my image, says God. You've been crowned with glory and dominion and might, but you're also dust. You see what it does? that we might not be the most impressive, but we have been imprinted with the image of God. When the light of God breaks in, we're okay with a tensioned existence. Not too high, not too low. Exactly how God designed humans to be. Created from the dirt, but in his image, what is volatile starts to get stable. We know our place. The last thing that the light of God does when it breaks in is it our vanished hope, it reappears. I think what trials can do is they can make us lose sight of our eternal hope. And it's impossible to read this psalm without a sense of doubt. The psalm clearly says all things under his foot, all sheep, all oxen, and whatever passes along the sea and in Hebrew poetry, this is like, this is, it's weird, right? That, that, that you see whatever's in the sea and what's in the heavens. And it's, and it's also all in between, right? That that's the idea. When you read it, you have to look at it. What David is doing, it's not just the sea and it's not just the heavens, but it's complete dominion on the earth. Now, here's the thing. Go do this. This is some homework. Well, don't do it, right? But go try to have a bleeding wound and go sit in the ocean, and see if a shark won't come and nibble on you a little bit, right? Jellyfish will do a number on you. I know we had students to be torn up by them at summer conference, right? Go, 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 go! YouTube, Sh- sheep attack shepherd, and you're gonna see some some weird stuff, right? <laughs> All of a sudden, when you look at this pack, it's like like David, what do you mean? I've been given dominion over all sheep and all oxen and all things in the sea. That's, that's not really true because sharks do kill people. And so we have to sort of step away and say, whoa, 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 there's some incongruency in this text. You have to understand the relationship between Romans 8 and Psalm 8. In Romans 8, Paul tells us why. Paul tells us why the dominion that we're supposed to have We don't have, David couldn't even exercise dominion over himself and his pride, not fully. Romans 8 says creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Romans 8 is saying when Adam sinned in the garden, that his sin did not just rupture this relationship with him and God, it also ruptured... Our relationship with creation, God's original design, God, angels, God's people, created order, and we have dominion over created order, and what happens when Adam sins? We made in the image of God go back to the dirt and now created order. We don't really have full dominion over it, not here and right now. And so the question that we have to ask is, who is this psalm ultimately about? And it's us and it's not us. We believe that this psalm is about someone else. We know, right, a party today will give way to a funeral tomorrow. We know that a good report from the doctor today, it will eventually end in a bad report from a doctor 10 years from now. We know that a healthy marriage will end with one spouse dying before the other. We know the joys of a newborn will also bring heartache and our souls should see that our dominion, no matter how long and temporary it is, it isn't total yet that we know that these these momentary bouts of light breaking in, there's something in you that ought to say, you know, it's not going to last long. And the question that we have to ask is, well, how is this resolved? It's about Jesus. In Matthew 21, when Jesus was in the temple and the children and the lame were flocking to him and they were saying, Hosanna, son of David, the religious leaders were angry. You know what Jesus says? Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You prepared praise. Jesus quoted verse 2 of Psalm 8. The author of Hebrews, which we can talk about why he takes some liberty to interpret it the way that he does, but nonetheless, he also makes this appeal right back to Psalm 8. He says, of Jesus, to which angel has God given dominion of all things, not one of them. He quotes Psalm 8. He has put everything in subjection to Christ. He has left nothing outside of his control. At the present, we don't see it, but we will. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is the first fruit being raised from the dead. And then at his coming, all those who belong to Christ and then comes the end. He will deliver the kingdom of God, the father, after he destroys every rule and authority and power. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. For God has put all things under his feet, even death. You see what Jesus says? I'm the one. I'm the one who has come. I'm the one. The the winds and the waves will obey my voice and they will not buck against me. I'm the one who will speak to a dead person and say, live again, because the death listens to me. I'm the one who will take on your sin and guilt and misery and go to a cross, fully God, fully man, and will go in a tomb. And three days later, my father will raise me in power and he has put all things under my feet. And guess what? I'm going to come back for you. And this momentary joy that you feel right here in this moment, when light breaks in, it is an indication and a foretaste of the real eternal hope that you have when I return. What we feel in part right now, Jesus says, it's just an appetizer of the things to come. And therefore, when the light of God breaks in, Our trials, they make us forget that. Our suffering and trials, they seem like they're forever. They're all consuming. And Jesus blows them back and says, no, 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 no. I have Lord over everything. And it's a taste. And one day, beloved, he's going to come back. And what we taste right now will not be a taste. It will be a forever All things are under his feet and you will reign with him and you will rule with him and you will be okay with him forever. Is it wrong to long for light? No. Is it wrong to enjoy times when God breaks in? No. It's a foretaste of the final breaking in that will last forever. This is a song. It's a psalm. It's a hymn. That's how this gets in our hearts and our souls, doing this right here. In the scriptures, singing psalms, being with God's people, God says you're going to sing light into your hearts. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would indeed allow the light to break in. Do this for your glory. Do this that we might see your beauty. Do this that you might stabilize our wayward emotions. Do this that we might long for a rest and rule that is eternal. Until then, Lord, we accept and anticipate these moments in our lives where you'll show up and You'll be near and faith will be clear and trials will recede. Draw near to us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.